Welcome to The Fix Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Robeck. Each week on our show, we invite a special guest to share their knowledge on health, wellness, and better daily habits so you can have the life you deserve. Let's get started. Today we have Susan Boss on the show and she was a, a patient or is a patient at Fixed Body Group. And um, Patrick Cucarola mentioned to me uh, what she's doing. And I told him I need to have her on our podcast. And uh, she has her own pod- podcast called Experiences and Caregiving. And the reason why she started this podcast is because her mother uh, suffered with Alzheimer's disease. And um, I also, also had a similar issue uh, with Alzheimer's. My grandmother suffered and passed away as a result. And so when I heard this, um, I asked Pat, would she be open to talking to me? Because Susan started her own support group and she found, uh, she found a need and she filled that need. And I think it's important that we share uh, her mission. And uh, thanks for being on today, Susan. Of course. Happy to be here. Uh, I know you're a distance runner in the past or potentially currently, and you're in New York. Uh, but you moved back to San Diego and there's a bit of a story there because when you were in New York, you found a support group, uh, as a result of, um, realizing that when you get, your mother gets diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease and you see how she progresses that, um, it affects every aspect of your life and you needed help. So I think the best place um, to start is what did, what, uh, (laughs) there is a little bit of delay, so I'm sorry. Uh, I'll try not to cut you off the whole time. It's okay. What happened? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, Um, yeah. Can you tell us why, uh, about that journey into having go, getting into a support group and then, um, and why you needed that? So actually the, you know, even just meeting Pat and working with Pat with fixed body actually all kind of started with this, which is, um, I used to do triathlon when I was living in South Africa. That's where I started doing triathlon. And then when I moved back to the States, I kind of, you know, put that off until I got settled. And then my mom got sick. I was diagnosed in 2014. And, you know, those first few years of where the hardest years. Um, I call it the gray area where they, they know that something is happening to them, but there's nothing that they can do about it. And obviously that's met with frustration and sadness and anger and every emotion under the sun and, um, having to, um, deal with that, uh, from a long distance, because at the time I was living 3000 miles away from my mom, um, was incredibly difficult. And I noticed probably about two years into um, the journey that, um, you know, my mom, you know, my mom is dying um, and I felt like I was dying too. I just, my depression was overwhelming and I thought it was a miracle that I was actually able to just get out of bed every day and still go to work and do the things that everybody else does. It was just, it it took so much more energy um, for me to do those things. And so I decided um, in early 2016 that I would get back into triathlon just to utilize that as an outlet um, for my grief because I needed to do something. I, you know, here I am feeling like I'm dying and I just, you know, I wanted to live. So that's what, that's what actually got me back into triathlon. 
Um, <clears throat> I eventually worked my way up into doing full Ironmans, which meant that I was getting injured a lot, <laughs> which veered me to fixed body group. And that's how I ended up working with Pat and who I continue to work with because I'm still training for triathlon. I'll be doing a full uh, in October. So I will be back with Pat someday soon. Um, but I, in the middle of that kind of gray period where, you know, my mom was, um, you know, knowing that something was happening to her and not able to do anything about it. Um, looking back on it, it was the grief, just, it was like a fog, you, you know, you, you can't really see outside of it and you don't really know, um, how you are acting in your own life because you're just kind of just moving through, um, the motions as it were. And it really wasn't until, you know, I, the office that I worked in was an open concept office. So there wasn't any privacy, but I was getting calls almost every day throughout the day, either from my mom who wanted to call the police because there was a stranger in their home who wasn't really a stranger. It was a caregiver, um, or, you know, a family member who was disgruntled about a decision that had been made about my mom's care and they didn't like that or decision about her finances that they didn't like, or it was my mom's best friend who at the time was in charge of making the big decisions who wanted help obviously in making those big decisions. And so every day it was just, you know, calls and calls. And I used to have to go into the copy room or the kitchen to, to take these calls. And of course they were upsetting and, you know, I would end up crying or yelling or, you know, just, it just kind of took the day away really. And, you know, at some point my, my bosses started to notice. Um, and I ended up actually getting a warning at work. And I had a colleague at work mention to me the idea of going to a support group. Um, she had lost her husband to Alzheimer's and she had been going to, to, a, to a spousal support group um, at Caring Kind, which is an offshoot of the Alzheimer's Association in New York. And their offices happen to be around the corner from our office. So she said, it's right there. You can just go maybe in the middle of the day, maybe after work and, you know, I think when you're kind of in the middle of it, you don't realize that you need help or you don't think that you need help. You know, I was very much a proponent of, I got this. I don't need help. I'm strong enough. I can do this. And then, you know, you kind of realize you can't really do this by yourself, you know, and that's not necessarily a weakness. That's okay. Um, and literally from that first um, meeting that I went to, it was, it was such a, um, it was such a game changer for me to be around people who, um, who were in similar situations to me, who were explaining things that had happened to me or that were happening to me, feelings, you know, having similar, um, feelings about things. And then all of a sudden, even just from that first, um, meeting, I wasn't by myself anymore which I really had felt by myself, not because there weren't people who were supportive. You know, I have a wonderful group of friends back in New York who I love very, very much. Um, but I was 29 when my mom was diagnosed. There's nobody else around me who was dealing with something like this. They had no um, concept of that type of grief or going through that. And nor should they. I, I say put that off until <laughs> you possibly can. I wouldn't want that for anybody. But um, 
so yeah, I mean, the, that group really changed things for me in terms of feeling less isolated um, and gave me a lot of good advice about how to handle situations that up until this point, I wasn't handling very well. Got it. And there is, you know, I guess, I think listeners would like to hear what, when you go to a support group, I'm sure there's people that wish they have attended support groups for a variety of reasons. Um, but what was, what was the benefit mm-hmm. of going? What did, what were you able to get out of it and how did, how did it flow and work? So, um, interestingly enough, you know, New York is obviously widely metropolitan. It's this, you know, huge city. So they have a massive amount of resources. There's a lot of different groups there. Um, and as a result, they're actually very, um, you know, you have to, you have to jump through a lot of hoops <laughs> to, to get to a group, which I found, um, funny, you know, I had to sign up. I, I had to go to like an introductory course about Alzheimer's, which being already three years in, I thought, okay. Um, but that's fine. And then I had to be um, interviewed by the support group leader, you know, to decide whether I would be a good fit for a specific group. And I remember actually I interviewed for a, they, that um, organization had a group um, for younger caregivers who were, you know, caregiving for their parents, which I fit into that group. Um, and I had an interview with the group leader, but it turned out that um, uh, at that time, several of her group members had just dealt with deaths of their loved one. And she that it wouldn't be right to bring somebody new um, into the group. It just, it wouldn't, you know what I mean? For, for their own protection, um, you know, and, and so she, she, um, asked that I go be in another group. So I interviewed with another, um, uh, facilitator who, you know, we got off on a better foot and, um, I joined that group. And what was wonderful about that is that it was a mixture of, um, older and also there were um, at least one other person who was around my age, which I obviously like, but that obviously helps just in terms of, um, you know, feeling a connection to somebody who would have um, similar experiences to me. Um, so that's kind of in terms of like how I got into it. Obviously, here in San Diego, there aren't as many resources. So it's a kind of a come one, come all kind of thing. <laughs> They're like, whatever, you want to join? Okay, sounds good. Um but um, from the first, uh, you know, group, I mean, obviously, I don't know how other groups are run. I can only, you know, detail how mine was run, which was that, you know, we were no more than a group of six. We specific, um, they cap it at a certain number um, just because they want everyone to have um, time to talk about what's going on in their life. and. And so I think at most we had six, but, um, uh, consistently, I think we had five, um, and, uh, we would just go around the room and just talk about what had been happening over the last two weeks. The group met twice a month. Um, and like I said, even just from that first meeting, just talking with, um, hearing other people's, um, experiences, um, and just thinking, um, you know, yes, you know, finally somebody was speaking about something that was also happening to me. It was like, you know, you're, you're meeting like a long lost family member or something. Um, there was a lot of camaraderie that first day. 
um, at least for me. They had already been together for a while. Um, and it just kind of went on from there. Um, you know, I, I fit in quite easily with that group and, um, we were so incredibly supportive of each other to the point where, you know, we started a group WhatsApp chat, um, that we still have today. And, um, even though, you know, I live in San Diego now and I'm not a part of the group anymore, I still talk with my group members and several of my group members. In fact, i almost all of my group members have been, um, a guest on my podcast support group. Uh, for different episodes, stuff like that. So we've, we've stick close and we still care deeply about each other. I mean, this is kind of, this is like getting into the trench of life, right. <laughs> you know, like when you're in, when you're in the trench with somebody that's for forever. Right. So, you know, I will, I will love that group for forever and be as supportive of them as I can. And they are incredibly supportive of me and check in with me and we check in on each other to make sure we're doing okay. And yeah, I'm very lucky that I found them. And I, I know that when you moved to San Diego, that was one thing that you missed in New York. And then you came here and it was a challenge to find a similar group and have a connection. And that was frustrating for you. If I remember you, correctly after our, our conversation a few weeks back. Uh, and then you took it upon yourself. Yeah. You found, you found that need um, and you, and you filled it and you created your own group, correct? Right. Well, so I, obviously I was looking when I moved back, I was looking for the same experience that I was getting in New York, which is to have an intimate group where everybody had the chance to talk and, you know, it was in an intimate, quiet setting and, you know, you would create this, this kind of this little family within, you know, a bigger, you know, uh, thing that was happening to you. And obviously San Diego is much smaller than New York. The resources aren't, you know, there aren't as many resources. And like I said, you know, most organizations as they should, you know, it's a come one, come all. Anybody who needs support should have support. Then they just don't have the same amount of resources to be able to have so many different types of groups, um, to have facilitators, to lead so many different types of groups, to allow for there to be such an, <clears throat> such an intimate setting of a small group. And so, um, you know, when I first moved back within the first couple of months, I went to a group, um, which again was, who, you know, whoever come one, come all, whoever comes and get support. And I think there was like 15 or 20 of us in the room. And it was like, a, you know, it was a room with fluorescent lighting and linoleum floors, and it just wasn't intimate at all. And I kind of just felt like the facilitator didn't really have control of the group because it was so big. And there was like one or two people who were just talking over everybody and not everybody got a chance to speak. And it just, there just wasn't really a flow to the group. And um, yeah, I was kind of disheartened by that. And so I decided that, well, if I can't get the experience that I want, then I shall create the experience that I want. Um, and so, yeah, I, I went to the Alzheimer's Association and asked if I could volunteer um, my time to facilitate a group specifically um, for people who work, because at the time they only had, I think, one or two groups that met on like a Wednesday at 10 a.m. And my first question was, but what about people who work? Um, uh, you know, and so <clears throat> my group um, is at 6 p.m. Um, to give people a chance to get home and get settled. Um, 
And right now, you know, the group is specifically for children whose parents um, have uh, some sort of cognitive impairment, um, not because I want to dissuade others from seeking support, but because I don't I don't have experience as a spouse, you know, or as any other family member. And I can't speak on that and I can't relate to that. So I don't want them to come in hoping for me to give them advice or for me to listen and to not be able to to give them the experience that they want. So um, my group is specifically for children like me. Um, And thankfully, um, in the group that I was in in New York, the facilitator didn't speak about her experience at all. In fact, to this day, I don't even know if she has a parent or any sort of relative who who had a cognitive impairment. I don't know. Um, It's a little bit different in my group in that um, I'm so much farther ahead um, in the journey than most other people in my group um, that um, several of them ask me specifically for advice. They ask me questions. Um, and um, it just was a natural flow that I would talk about my experience. Um, it seems to bring several people relief to know, you know, what's coming so that it's not a surprise um, to know what's important, to know what's maybe not so important, what to prioritize and what not to prioritize um, and things like that. So as a result, even though technically I'm the facilitator, I also get my own support out of it um, by being able to you know, talk about uh, my experience. You know, I had a group last night and, you know, we ran out of time, so I wasn't going to say anything, but my group specifically stayed on and we're like, no, but we want to hear about you. What's been going on with you? Quickly tell us about you. So, you know, that we care about each other. We want to know how we're doing. So as a result, even though I'm a facilitator, I'm also getting the support that I need also through the group that I created. That's great. Yeah. You also found a need for a podcast. (laughs) Yeah. It did work out. You, well, you you definitely filled, you found, you found something that there's a need and you filled it. And I I think that's, I love having people on the show that have that, um, I guess you'll call it that entrepreneurial mindset where it's like, doesn't exist. I'm going to make it happen. So I applaud you for that. Um, and you also made something else happen. You created a podcast. (laughs) So, uh, tell us about experiences in caregiving and what you discussed there and what, and, uh, how that started. Well, I think the pandemic kind of was a game changer for everybody specifically in the, in caregiving. Um, you know, for me, um, I had a pretty good routine down with my mom, you know, um, she lives in a facility and I would spend every Saturday afternoon with her. We'd have, you know, I'd come for lunch and then we'd go into her room and we would watch movies and cuddle. And that was our time. And it was perfect. It, I mean, given the situation, obviously right. having all sense is not perfect, but you know, we had our, we had our little routine and that was really great. And I'm someone who thrives on routine and people with Alzheimer's thrive on routine. So, you know, we had something really good for a second there. And then the pandemic hit and, you know, in mid-March last year, um, I couldn't see my mom in person anymore. Um, I couldn't see my support group in person anymore. Um, you know, my, my job, uh, I was actually let go for six weeks. I was brought back <laughs> because they realized they couldn't live without me, which I tried to tell them that, but you know, people don't listen. Um, so I was able thankfully to, to get my job back, which I'm very lucky to have my job. Um, but, um, you know, it kind of left 
me in limbo without that routine. Um, and it was, it was just really painful for me. It was painful for my mom trying to explain to her why I couldn't see her in person. And then when they would open it up to window visits or patio visits, I had to try to explain to her why I couldn't touch her because we were, you know, very affectionate with each other. And so, you know, she wanted me to sit next to her. She wanted me to hold her and trying to explain to somebody who has Alzheimer's why I can't hold her. Um, well, it's obviously an experience, but also just, just feels wrong. It just feels wrong to yeah. not be able to hold my mom. So my depression kicked up <laughs> again. Um, and, uh, you know, I was having conversations um, with people in my group, which had been moved to Zoom. And thankfully, um, you know, people actually have been consistent. They've kept coming. And so I still have consistently about four to six people, you know, every group, which is wonderful. Um, and I was, you know, obviously talking to a lot of friends about how I was feeling and what was going on. And one of my best friends from college um, who lives in New York, you know, who I'm super close with, um, he, uh, produces a couple of podcasts for his job. And he asked if I had ever thought about making my support group into a podcast. Um, and I hadn't <laughs> never thought about that. Um, but the idea intrigued me, um, just because obviously it would give people, uh, a wider access to support, you know, maybe people feeling like I was feeling just again, you know, I started to feel how I felt when I lived in New York being 3000 miles away from my mother, even though I live 10 minutes away from my mother. Um, and I didn't like that feeling. I didn't like, I felt like I was going backwards and that wasn't supposed to be the case. So I thought, well, you know, if I can help other people feel you know, less like that, feel less isolated. You know, a lot of people these days actually having to pick up a phone and call for information and stuff like that, especially for something like this, where, you know, in a lot of cases, um, support isn't really normalized. Again, that thought process of, I got this, I can take care of it myself. And if I get help and that somehow I'm weak, somehow I can't handle it, or maybe I don't deserve it because I'm not the one with the disease or, you know, there's a hundred reasons of why people don't don't seek out support. So right. this kind of seemed like a great way that, you know, people don't have to make any phone calls. People don't have to sign up. They don't have to interview. They don't have to do anything. They just have to press play. And there's a whole library of episodes um, available to them about specific topics uh, along the caregiving journey for somebody who has cognitive impairment. So, um, you know, obviously the topics, it's different from my support group. My support group's just, hey, what have you been up to? Right. Um, whereas I didn't think that that would work in a podcast setting. So we, we, we brainstormed, you know, obviously with the Alzheimer's association about specific topics that should be covered. Um, and that list is very fluid and we're always coming up with new topics and stuff like that. And so, yeah, late last year, we, you know, I went to the Alzheimer's association and said, well, what about this? <laughs> and they were like, sound great. And, you know, I really applaud them for always being so, you know, coming from a place of yes. I, I, I've never heard the word no from them, you know, even if they have to figure things out in order to make it work, they're always willing to try and figure it out and make it work. And, you know, 
I obviously I have to applaud them for, you know, always trying to find new and interesting ways to get people the stuff that they need. So obviously they were a hundred percent behind the podcast and have been so incredibly supportive. And they're obviously the ones who put it out. They're the ones who market it. Um, and so we, there are six episodes out already, um, on Apple, Google, Spotify, everywhere. Um, and then we've just recorded, uh, a few more. And so we will have a, a, a 10 episode library open to everybody starting at the beginning of March. And then going forward from there, we'll have one new episode a month. So, you know, uh, and what's great about it is that um, people have already heard it. And so now people from all over the country have emailed and asked to share their own journey on the podcast. So, you know, I've had people from New York, DC, Minnesota, Nevada, you know, and so it's, it's kind of taken on a little bit of, you know, a mind of its own in in a way, but it's, it's wonderful. And it's, it's kind of funny because I mean, I really, you know, these ideas don't come to me because, you know, I, I don't think of myself as an entrepreneur in any way or anything like that. I mean, if anything, it's selfish. I just, I have this grief. It's inside of me. It's there all the time. It has to go somewhere. Cause I don't, I don't want to drown in that. So these are just the offshoots of needing an outlet for what's happening to myself. <laughs> so oh, yeah. I guess if you need an outlet, that's a good outlet to have to help other people with it. So there you uh, go. Yeah. The, uh, if we have, um, I, we sit down with our clients for well over an hour during the initial evaluation we go into a detailed health history and we talk about family history and I can't tell you the number of people that tell us that they have a, you know, family member with a neurodegenerative condition or cognitive disorder. And we talk about it and Mm -hmm. we ask them, you know, how's it going? And they're like, there's only so much you can do is always the, the, is what they say. And, uh, and it's not easy. And I I saw what my parents had to go through with my grandmother. And um, the question is ultimately, Mm -hmm. what does one do? And what you're doing now is creating a podcast for information where people from all over the country or world can share their story and share and give guidance. And I think that's the reason why we have you Mm -hmm. on today is so when people tell us this during their initial evaluation, we can share this information and give them your information and your podcast. And, and, um, you know, at the end of the show, which is coming up, you can tell them, tell our listeners if they're suffering or they have family members, uh, or they're, they're they need help, um, where they can find help. Uh, but I think it's very important, um, for these people to have a resource and not just keep things bottled up and take specialists. So it's huge. I think there was an article written by Gene Wilder's wife, who was his caregiver. You know, he, he, he also died uh, from complications due to Alzheimer's and it was some crazy, but don't quote me, but it was some crazy percentage of, of caregivers. They end up getting sick as a result of not of Alzheimer's, but of a hundred other things, because they don't think to take care of themselves while they're taking care of the person. And I have several group members, you know, who've, who've come to the support group. Um, you know, I have one who was um, diagnosed with con- uh, congestive heart failure and was literally told, if you do not start mm-hmm. putting yourself first, you will die. And, you know, trying to explain to her that like, you can't take care of him. It was her, it's her father who's, who's, um, who's diagnosed. Can't take care of him if you're dead. Like you have, we, you know, even if it's small, 
even if it's some little piece of your day that is just for you, that brings you joy, that just gives you a break from what is happening and allowing, um, you know, other people to come in and also help you with the care process. Um, that's huge. You know, I have, I've had a quite, I, I had a new woman on um, last night from San Francisco, you know, who her, her blood pressure is through the roof and she's barely had a, had a minute to herself in the last year, you know, with her mother. And, you know, it's, it is hard for people to accept help in the first place, but also to accept that, um, that it's okay to take care of yourself in addition to taking care of the person that you're taking care of, that actually you can't have one without the other. And so, um, uh, there is definitely a push for acceptance of self-care um, and and being okay with putting yourself first sometimes um, in order to make sure that you were okay so that you care of the person that you're taking care of. That is a huge, it's, it's massive. Yeah. I think that is the best place we can end the show. That's very well said. And thank you. For, thank <laughs> you for that. Um, <laughs> Well, thank you for your time. Anything that you want to share with our listeners as far as um, where they can get support outside of your podcast experiences and caregiving? So obviously, um, you know, my first recommendation is to look up your uh, chapter of the Alzheimer's Association. Um, several of them, if not all of them, you know, I can't speak for all of them, but I know that, you know, the church that I work with, they have several classes um, where you can obviously learn about all the different parts of the journey. And then obviously there are support groups and um, just, you know, massive amount of resources available. And then, you know, if you're not ready to do that or you just don't have the time or, you know, would just rather not, that's okay too. And, you know, that's kind of in part why the, why the podcast exists as well, you know. So just looking up experiences and caregiving on Apple or Spotify or Google. Um, the podcast is available to anybody who just wants to maybe not talk, but just listen in and just hear about people's similar experiences. That also might be helpful. Susan, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate the information and what you're doing. Sure. Well, oh, thank you. And thank you for having me. You're welcome. I hope to meet you in person someday. We'll make it happen right. when we can travel. That's right. <laughs> All right. Take care. Hey, everyone. I hope you enjoyed our show. If you did, please like and subscribe to stay tuned. See you next week on another episode of The Fix Podcast.